Welcome to episode number 68. 68. And uh, back in episode 37, we talked about numbers. Yeah. And uh, inject some steroids into that, and this is right. what you get. This is, this is like, this will get you. Yeah. So um, take out your calculators and uh, your compasses and your <laughs> other mathematical Your, your apron things. with a G on it. Right, right. There you go. And your little Shriner hat. <laughs> no, no, no. It's actually it's all very simple math. And um, anyways, our our guest is very excited, as are we, to hear what he has to say. He originally had uh, sent us a 500-page manuscript of his new book coming out, or out. I guess it is out now. It just, there you I go. think it just came out. So there right. you go. So there you go. So, but before we get into that, um, we would just like to one more time thank everybody for giving us your reviews and your ratings on iTunes and all those other great places. That's really helping us out, getting the word out, and, uh, you know, letting people know that it's worth giving Canary Cry Radio a listen. And if you haven't done that yet, I would, again, consider it a personal favor if you went to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to us and leave us a nice rating or review or not, just whatever you <laughs> whatever you feel like doing. Well, you know, we've been getting a lot of email messages from you guys, either through the website or just directly to canarycryradio at gmail.com. Right. And we appreciate all the insights. And, and, you know, some of you guys are just writing, hey, you guys rock, thank you. And we appreciate yes. that. And others of you are pouring out your heart a little bit and and we appreciate that as well because your emotional equity yeah and uh you know the you guys talk about the difference the show's made in in your walk uh, with yes. christ and stuff and that's that kind of stuff is what um really encourages us to keep going it's what we're all about here absolutely yeah and uh, on top of all that encouragement as if that wasn't enough to keep it going yeah. Many of you have stepped up and have supported Canary Cry Radio financially for several yes. months now. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much for that. We want to thank you. I wish I could just read your names off right here, but probably not everybody would enjoy having their uh, names read over, you know, such a popular internet program such as this. <laughs> You know, for anonymity reasons. But anyways, we thank you so, so much. And um, it's really helping Gons and I out in our time of need. A lot of you are aware of our situations. And for those of you who are just now feeling convicted and led uh, to help out Canary Cry Radio in a financial fashion, you can go to canarycryradio.com and click on the support tab. And there you can make uh, either a one-time donation in any amount or even a monthly uh, gift that is just set up automatically. 
and that would be great too. Absolutely. And you know, this show, and we, we actually, Basil and I decided that we're not going to get, you know, sponsorships and, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. We're not going to make commercials for, you know, dog diapers or something. Swift or wet jet, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> they, they won't leave me alone. They want that Don't, don't mention spot. the name of the product. Oh, well, crap. Maybe I just got money for mentioning it. Who knows? No, we won't. In it now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, but, you know, because we're not going to do that, we are just going to stay listener supported. And so your contribution is going to keep the show going and uh, help us grow. So, again. Absolutely. You're listening to listener supported Canary Cry Radio with <laughs> your host, Basil and Gons. Uh, Sweet. I guess yeah, that's okay. the cool voice. Uh, t-shirts. I, I oh yeah, there's t-shirts still. Um, so there's that. Yep. Uh, there's on also the store tab, I think. Yep. yep. Uh, you can go to ageofdeceit.com and get your copy of Age of Deceit 2, or you can watch it for free there. And uh, maybe maybe we'll talk about this whole situation. Uh, a yeah, later. a lot of you are aware of a little situation going on. We are still talking it out, still figuring it out, and so you know, just keep. Keep us in your prayers. Keep Gons especially in your prayers. And keep uh, all parties involved in your prayers. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, let's hop into our interesting conversation for this episode. Lots of numbers. Here we go. Three, two, one. Our guest today is co-editor of The Tribnet since 2004, having written scores of ebooks on Bible prophecy. Uh, he served as an education administrator for public schools for over 20 years and was formerly the executive director of the National Religious Broadcasters National Prayer Breakfast in honor of Israel during the 1980s. Additionally, he was a pastor during the Jesus Movement in Berkeley, California, and since 1968, he's been married to Deborah and has three children who love the Lord Jesus. Uh, Doug's involvement with Christian leadership led to several White House briefings during the Reagan administration uh, with the Religious Roundtable in the American Forum for Jewish Christian Cooperation. He has co-authored The Final Babylon alongside Dean McGriff and Doug Woodward, who we had on a few episodes ago. And he was one of the revered speakers at the Prophecy Forum Conference back in February. And he's recently written a new book called Signs in the Heavens and on the Earth, Man's Days Are Numbered. It's Douglas Krieger. Douglas Krieger. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing great. Good to be on here with you guys today. Yeah, good to talk with you, buddy. It was nice uh, seeing you there at the Prophecy Forum. Yeah, that was wonderful. Wasn't that a, a great time we had together back then? It was super. Oh, we go way back now. We're old pals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that, that's part of the ancient a day phenomenon that we're going through. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway. we, actually, we actually have a good number of li- listeners, I believe, that were uh, there too, walking around. So you probably met a couple oh. of them. Mm. Hey, some of the uh, 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 folks there, well, all of them, but the, the ones that I had the opportunity to speak with, are just uh-huh. very challenging, very engaging, uh, extremely interested. Of course, I was in a state of shock at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning that 200 people would be there 
listening to uh, me speaking at a place in Orange County. That was uh, somewhat baffling. Yeah, it's a uh, smart and devoted bunch. Yeah, I was uh, I was really quite shocked. <laughs> I'll schedule you next time at seven thirty, just yeah. so you oh, can. Thank you very much. Yeah, the <laughs> earlier the better. Yeah, and you'll you'll see me out there bright and early with my uh, beard and sunglasses and orange hair. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That Afro orange hair thing that was good. <laughs> my awesome mullet. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well let's let's uh, jump in here a little bit. Why don't we start off? Tell us a little bit about your testimony and how you came to the Lord, and uh, what led you to uh, your interest in writing about Bible prophecy, and so on and so forth. Well, I had the opportunity of listening to Billy Graham years and years ago, and through that experience, and also the fact that a businessman locally here in Sacramento, where I was born and raised, and I'm still living here, had the opportunity to attend some of his Bible studies. I was raised a Lutheran, but I never really had a personal encounter with Christ, as such that I understand today is uh, something that we're all called personal repentance, and um, having uh, experienced uh, the phenomenon that I did as in high school, when I found the Lord, that led me onto a path. I went from there out of high school into a Bible Institute, uh, part of that, at Multnomah School of the Bible in Portland, Oregon. A wonderful experience with um, some of the folks up there that I uh, grew up with in the Lord that, um, in fact, this latest book that I have, uh, Signs in the heavens and on the earth. I've part of my dedication, and I usually have a dedication on these books, is that uh, to uh, Dr. Willard Aldridge, who passed away 2009 at 100 years of age. He was president of the uh, of the school. Oh my anyway, gosh. yeah, uh, quite a uh, quite a legacy that man has left. And yeah. uh, I grew uh, in the in the faith as uh, time allowed and um, went through the uh, war years there with Vietnam, had the opportunity of, um, of uh, uh, going to, at the time, I went to, uh, it was L.A. State, I think it's uh, California State University, Los Angeles, graduated from that institution, and uh, then uh, got off into teaching, and uh, uh, during the latter part of the uh, 60s, early 70s, found myself in Berkeley with a number of uh, brethren, and we raised up a work there. We had about 400 uh, young people, mainly, uh, who had, in the main, most of whom had uh, just encountered the Lord. So that was a very um, interesting experience uh, in Berkeley, to say the least. That was during the time of the uh, Christian World Liberation Front, CWLF, right. uh, Jack Sparks, a lot of those guys, uh, back then and uh so did you have a big beard and long hair and walk around with no shoes I, on? I didn't, <laughs> 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 my, my my extreme experience in, in 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 those lines never occurred uh okay we did we did have a flatbed truck that we drove around in and and uh, had a little gospel band on the back of it <laughs> a little uh, little folk band 
Oh, yeah. Actually, it was a jug band. There and, you uh, go. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you fit right in. Okay. I see. I see yeah. what's going on. Yeah, we were accused of jug bands create jug people. <laughs> well, there's an argument to be said about that, but that's for another yeah. episode. <laughs> that's another episode. But so anyway, yeah, um, so I had a little theological background and uh, a little secular, so-called secular um, uh, background, and then I was a um, uh, director of regional occupational uh, programs here in the greater Sacramento area for a while. And so I am retired now. And uh, during the course of all of that, I had the opportunity of um, working with the National Religious Broadcasters for a number of years. And I sound like I must be, you know, 150 years old myself, but not quite. We we uh, managed to retire and uh, um, basically um, uh, continue my work in Bible prophecy, which has always fascinated me. And uh, as a result of that, I've, I've written several books. One is The Final Babylon that we've talked about before with Doug Woodward, who pulled me out of the closet as a writer. Most of my stuff has been online, uh, free of, uh, of uh, any encumbrances. And uh, I've really enjoyed working uh, in a blog kind of environment. And then uh, as a result of a lot of those writings, I think a lot of people found out about who I was and what was going on. Then I got into um, numbers uh, because I had a math background, and uh, that always attracted me in any event. And as a result of that, I decided to put this book together with a lot of interest that people are having with these blood moons and so forth. I decided to do a book on chronologies and numbers, Bible numbers, uh, so forth and so on, and put the book together. And and like I said, you know, just right now I'm downloading it on a Kindle situation so people can get it electronically. Right. And, uh, yeah, so well, that's very kind of cool. a little bit of background. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, that is. And you, you know, you are, especially in this blog environment, it really harbors a prolific writer in you, I feel like. I mean, you sent us this uh, manuscript over the internet of your new book, and I mm-hmm. opened it up, and it's almost 500 pages long. I'm like, yeah, it's a guy, magnum opus. Yes. Yeah, he has a lot <laughs> of things to say, and also maybe a little bit of time on his hands. Uh, but very <laughs> impressive, <clears throat> very impressive uh, uh, amount of work, and also the content there. What do you think of it, Guns? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, just to read off a few of the chapter headings, there's a lot of sub, you know, subsections per chapter. But we got chapter one is called Universality of the New Jerusalem. Then chapter two, Giza's Pyramid, Ezekiel's Holy District. Chapter three, Divinely Designed Objects on Earth. Chapter four, Visions, Tabernacles, and Temples. Chapter five, The Seven Wonders of the World. Chapter 6, man's days are numbered. Are you getting bored again, Basil? Are you going to yawn again, or what's <laughs> yes. going on here? No, what do you I can, I can hear, I can just sense the... But we'll, we'll go on, we'll get into some of the nitty-gritty <laughs> later. But, Doug, should, uh, I wanted to ask you... fall 10 sub-chapters, too, while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. And, and, Doug, we'll get into the nitty-gritty, but I wanted to set this up, because... Uh, and a little backstory here. Okay, Rick Warren, who, who everybody knows Rick Warren, at least in the Christian circles, he recently yep. came out and uh, condemned the study of Bible prophecy, specifically people who set dates. 
And um, he uses uh, Acts chapter 1 and sort of paraphrased, you know, what Jesus said there. And actually, I, in my talk at the Prophecy Forum conference, when I was talking about the New Age infiltration of the Christian church, I pointed out how his little paraphrasing of what Jesus said, which was something to the effect of, don't worry about when I'm coming back, you know, spread the gospel. Um, he, the way he verbalized it, sounded a lot like what Alice Bailey wrote when she channeled Dejwa Kool, the, uh, the ascended master, uh, back when, yeah. she, when he wrote, or when she wrote the reappearance of the Christ, uh, as, you know, several decades ago. So that being said, before we jump into everything, just to set everything up, why should we bother with the study of Bible prophecy as far as you're concerned? And specifically, as it pertains to your work, because you know, you're going to set dates on this episode, right? You're going to start telling us when Jesus is going to come back. Yes, of course. Well, with regards to uh, America's pastor, uh, Rick Warren, uh, seen by some as such, I wouldn't go that far. But in any event, Brother Warren has made himself very clear on several occasions, most recently, actually, again, with regards to putting a blood moon on his Facebook and then uh, denying that he did so because of some kind of a prophetical interest, apparently. I, you know, with regards to that, when Jesus was ascending, and the two that stood by and watched this happening, their first comment to the disciples that were watching the ascension was, now you guys get out there and start preaching the gospel. That's not what they said. What they said was, this same Jesus that you're seeing going this way is coming back in like manner. Their preachment to them was the second coming of Christ. So in a sense, the very first message, while the ascension was going on, had to be something that was very prophetical. It had everything to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Mm. So insofar as denigrating the prophetic, as far as... Uh, you know, you look at Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, Mark 13, you look at these passages that have everything to do with eschatology and the prophetic and the parables of readiness that are there uh, that are so obvious that the anxiety level, if you would, of the disciples with regards to you know, when are we going to take over Jesus? And then Jesus telling them about all the uh, signs of the times, the end times, what's going to happen, and how it's going to happen in copious detail. That you're going to now tell me that the study of prophecy and of the end of time and of end times and the last days is peripheral mm. at, at, at best, when Jesus lays so much incredible emphasis upon it at the very conclusion of his ministry. It's the apex, the zenith. This is the most important thing. I want you to get this thing for sure. Right. Okay? And so um, all that said, I think that the emphasis that Pastor, you know, Rick Warren and his attempts to diminish 
the prophetic study of the scriptures, when it has everything to do with sanctification, with the preaching of the gospel, with the preaching of righteousness. I mean, if you're looking at Daniel chapter 12, it's very clear that many will be turned to righteousness on that day, and that it has a very purifying uh, influence within the church. Lord knows how desperately we need that right now. And so, you know, all of the issues that, you know, are you ready for my coming? As in the days of Noah, what are you doing with your talents? Uh, he'll come at an hour you think not. Is there enough oil in your lamp? All of these right. are in reference to the prophetic. Absolutely, okay. I agree, yeah. So for, for uh, Pastor Rick to, uh, and, and why he's doing this to exacerbate a situation that he doesn't really need to exacerbate. I mean, the prophetic, there's an urgency in the sharing of, a, of, a, of the gospel of the grace of God. Are, in other words, are you ready? Are, he's coming as a thief if you're not. So, you know, uh, I mean, I've had, you know, certain pastors, I'm not going to uh, get into detail, who, you know, claim that Jesus isn't coming back for the next 400 years. At least he's coming back, right? And then I've got some that say, well, you know, his coming back is his coming back in us. Sort of a, a, a Baha'i kind of an attitude where you're all merging into the Godhead. Right, for right. Yeah. Bit. And, uh, and then, of course, there's, there's a lot of uh, brethren who embrace uh, a, a flaming ah millenarian kind of style uh, preachment where we're living in the gospel uh, hour, the kingdom, and uh, there will be a final conclusion of all this, but we're in the millennium right now. We don't even need a millennium. We're already in it. Hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and if that's the case, well, the devil's got one, you know, hellacious leash yeah. uh, <laughs> that he is able to roam around as a roaring lion, seeking whomever he may devour. Peter hmm. just wasn't clear. He was living in the kingdom. Right. So, um, yeah, the, and, and, and people do and say and act, I've always said this, they have a certain kind of function. They have a worldview wherein they will either look at the kingdoms of this world, have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, therefore we need to take control, we need to alter the social structures, and there's a very, very thin line between social reformation and political reformation, for mm. that matter, and the kingdom of, of heaven right. that we represent here on the earth right now. And so... Uh, but that's a, uh, uh, in other words, Pastor Rick is saying what he's saying because he's not interested in the future. He's interested in the, in the now, the here. And it's a this worldly emphasis that he's gotten himself into because of his eschatology, which basically is an eschatology wherein everything's been fulfilled anyway. Let's just take control. Mm. You know, let's, 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 let's go for the, uh, gold right here and now. And, uh, you know, fortunately, praise God, the, 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 the one thing that militates that is that, you know, Jesus has commented, rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Mm -hmm. And that's always been an inhibiting factor within Christianity, that we cannot, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We are salt and light. We do have a prophetic voice uh, to speak to Belshazzar and to read the handwriting on the wall from time to time. 
But we are either that or we're sitting on top of the beast and riding the beast at providing moral covering uh, for this thing. And on the other hand, we are totally oblivious to the fact that that thing can turn on you in a heartbeat and devour you. And so if you're looking to uh, have the state support you and you provide the moral covering to the state, I think that the metaphors are very, very clear. Now, I'm not saying that when Rick went down to Rwanda and saw what was going on down there that his heartstrings were, you know, uh, definitely pulled, and he determined that he was going to do something about that. And so you've got, you've got this interesting uh, uh, thing going about his philosophy, if you would, that will allow him to transform uh, state structures uh, to the point where it becomes very activistic along those lines. Fortunately, Jesus did not tell Peter uh, that, okay, you know, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going out, I'm going to be resurrected, and uh, Peter, you're running for mayor of Jerusalem as soon as this is, you know, when I ascend. He did not say that to Peter. Okay, now I'm not saying that we shouldn't join the school board or, you know, run for any kind of political office, okay? But that's not the emphasis that you have in the gospel of the grace of God. Sure. It just isn't. It sure. just isn't. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so uh, there's something much deeper going on here. This is what I'm saying with Pastor Rick Warren with regards to his particular bent on social activism and um, so forth and so on. So, um, yeah, but anyway, we're moving ahead. And But anyone who deprecates the, the, the prophetic or tries to diminish it as something that's not in the here and the now simply has a profound misinterpretation and understanding of why the Bible is so prophetic. In point of glaring fact, Okay, may I uh, remind all of myself and everybody else out there that's listening that when John the Beloved was on the Isle of Patmos, he was on there for two reasons, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, which we find out later in the Apocalypse, in the Revelation, is the spirit of prophecy. Mm. So the very essence of who Jesus Christ really is demands a prophetic understanding. And when he says the spirit of prophecy, that means it must be spoken. It has to get out there. We're not in conflict in that sense with Pastor Warren. And so far as the prophetic goes and sharing the gospel of the grace of Hey, Billy Graham, um, he used to wrap up all of his crusades with the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's still doing it. Right. Okay? So, so this whole emphasis upon the coming of the Lord is given to unbelievers just as well that, hey, you know, this is going to be like in the days of Noah. He's going to shut the ark, and you're going to be outside, and we're all going to be in. So what are we going to do from there? So there is this imperative. You know, one of the things that Ray Comfort discovered recently at Venice Beach when he was interviewing everybody, I don't know if you've seen the video. It's very, very good, by the way. And that is that over 
close to about 80% of everybody, this is the greatest majority of anything that he had going on his little interview thing, they all agree that we are in big trouble. We are in big trouble. I mean, the atheist would say that, the agnostic would say that, the religious, the irreligious, whoever, right, out there on the beach would say that we'll all agree we're in trouble. Well, there's a sense of urgency. Something is concluding here. Something is is coming to a terminus. We can't keep doing what we're doing and being at this at this level without something snapping and breaking badly. Okay? All we are doing as Christians in heralding the second coming is saying repeatedly that the ultimate reformation is a is an in 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 an intrusion of divine deliverance. Now that's true Christianity. Right. We believe in divine deliverance. We believe that somebody's going to open up the Red Sea. There's no way out of this. And 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 does that mean that we're not going to plant our apple tree today? Does that mean that we're not going to try to correct the the mess that we're in? Or is, you know, is it gone so far that we find ourselves, you know, uh, you know, and these, uh, these crazy accidents that keep happening on these ships, whether it's the Concordia or this thing that just happened in South Korea, and, it, you know, where the captain falls into a lifeboat, right, and should have warned everybody to get off this thing. Right. But, but, but he didn't. Okay, well, this is the captain speaking, and it is time to get off this thing. And, you know, and here's all these people. We just found them, what, 48 um, uh, students, high school kids that were all crammed into a room. All of them had life jackets on, and, and tragically, tragically, they couldn't get out because this guy and his crew you know, wanted to take care of El Numero Uno, and they jumped off the boat. He had a half hour to tell all those kids to get out of there, and he didn't do it. Hmm. And so we are faced with that reality today, spiritually. We're on, a, we're, on a, we're on a cruise ship here, guys, and this thing's going down. And just because those dishes are flying across the floor and... You know, you're walking sideways on the hallways, and this is the captain speaking, and we're having a little electrical problem right now. You know, this thing has gotten to the point now where, uh, you know, that's why I've said what I've said, that time is short. We're running out of time in more ways than one, and biblically it would appear that, uh, you know, if if the thesis is correct that we've got 6,000 years on this globe, given to man, and one day is, is a thousand years, and the early church fathers and the rabbis and everybody else has said we've got 6,000 years, then we need to take a look at this. It's serious. And as far as Rick saying that I and others who uh, delve into these matters are uh, arrogant and that we share a, a measure of arrogance, uh, to know these things, when in point of fact, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 says that it will come about in the end of time that many of us are going to be searching anxiously 
throughout the book and that knowledge of the prophetic as revealed by the prophets, okay, and the purposes of God will become known in great and become great at the end of time. Mm-hmm. So I'm just one of the guys fulfilling prophecy, if you would, searching anxiously throughout the book, okay, as defining the purposes of God that they will become known and become great in the latter days. So, right. uh, hey, you know, uh, if he doesn't want to do that, that's his prerogative, I guess. But yeah. he's missing out on a, on, a, on, a, on a tremendous deal here. Right. Now, you mentioned your background in numbers, and in episode 37, we talked about numbers, and in the episode, we discussed something called vortex mathematics. A fellow named Randy Powell, uh, influenced by Marco Rodin, claimed that there was a pattern that formed a torus, and if one can apply it correctly, it like harness the power of spin. Um, yeah. And the number, right, and the number nine kept coming up. Yes. Uh, yes, the number nine, very much so. Yeah, yeah, and, and interestingly, before before we we jump in, I was going through your book, and you know, you're a numbers guy, you're a math guy, and so I started doing a little little exercise because there's a, a numerical equation, so to speak, where you take the numbers and digits within the number and add them together, and then again take those digits and reduce it down to a single number. And so I was going through, and we can get into, you know, specifically what these numbers represent as we go along, but I was going through the numbers that you laid out and Earth's diameter, you know, nine, the, the, uh, the number there, 7920, seven, yeah. seven, you add 792 together, you get 18, you add 1 and 8, you get 9. And, right. and that, that worked with almost every number, the moon's diameter, the wall of Jerusalem, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Hebrew sacred cubit, 25.20 inches, 2 plus 5 plus 2 mm-hmm. equals 9. It just kept coming up over and over and yeah. over. And after a while, I thought, okay, well, what is going on here? Because every single number that you bring up, stuff that, that shouldn't really, I mean, you know, one or two coincidences, sure. But the fractal distance from Earth to Sun, 95,040,000. Same there. If you just mm-hmm. add the digits, you know, 9 plus 5 plus 0 plus 4 plus 0 is 0, 0. It's 18, and then split that. 1 plus 8 equals 9. Yeah. Even the original cubic inch uh, that you point out, 1728, one, seven, 1 plus 7 plus 2 plus 8, 18, 1, 8, 9. Everything mm-hmm. resolves with 9, and I'm thinking, what's going on? So, okay, let's... Can we get into that a little bit, and you can, you can take it whichever direction you'd like. But this is, this is sort of you know, <laughs> that kind of opens up all, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, obviously a pattern is developing. Uh, numbers in and of themselves, and I think we can uh, concur with this. Do not have any magical uh, capability in and of themselves. I'm glad we're laying but, that out in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll we'll get like we'll that. get the hate mail. <laughs> you guys are numerologists. <laughs> Yeah, he's a numerologist. Yeah, and by the way, you know, numerology has uh, uh, E.W. Bullinger, you know, was the great Anglican uh, numerologist back in the 1800s. And he had done uh, such an incredible uh, work on uh, gematria, you know, because both Hebrew and Greek are numerical languages. And each of the letters, you know, can be symbolized sure. uh, by and, a number. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe Chuck Missler also pointed out a, a guy named Ivan Panin, 
who had done oh, yeah. some yeah. Uh, pretty incredible work as well with numbers. Yeah. Especially the number of 70 and 7s right. and so forth. And he was the uh, kind of a Russian uh, kind of a guy. Great guy, by the way. Uh, and he was totally caught up into the 70s. By the way, in the, um, in the book, uh, The Final Babylon, we uh, deal with this issue of 70. And it is a, it's, it's a matter of generation, as a matter of judgment, as a matter of a, of a time frame in which the Almighty has chosen to work in. All of these things on number are, and number sets are very much uh, in the book uh, uh, because of time and space, space having to do with distance and value <clears throat> relative to so many, many different ways of communicating. Numbers are absolute. A God is absolute. We are dealing here in absolutes. If we can find a certain pattern, you know, that, that word pattern, that pattern on the mount in building the and designing the tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, to the pattern. Obviously, there was a pattern in the, in the building of Noah's Ark. Uh, there was obviously all of these incredible, I mean, if you look at it, one out of every five verses, it turns out, in the Bible, uh, is significant insofar as number and numbers are concerned, number sets are concerned. So what, what is all this? Where is all this going? Where is it leading from the very commencement of Genesis? You're dealing with time. Time has number directly connected. Where did we get a 24-hour day? Where did we get a seven-day week? Uh, where did all of this, uh, the, these minutes and hours and, and so forth come from? You know, just recently, uh, it was made known to me uh, that as far as uh, old, old Earth theory goes, that the uh, universe, Milky Way, is uh, a huge galaxy that... Um, uh, universe here. We 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 look at all the other galaxies, but the one that we're in apparently is been spinning around. Uh, so they say 4.5 billion years, and that uh, we, our solar system, uh, moves around the galactic center uh, once every 220 million years. <laughs> Interestingly enough, if you take that 220 million, and by the way, we're in our 21st around of this, so they say, I'm just telling you what they say, the astronomers, that we've gone around here 21 times. We're in the 21st cycle, and that's very important. Uh, so you can bank that 2-1 on the side here. Mm -hmm. Out of 220 million years that it takes us to orbit the galactic center, which is 360 degrees, if you multiply that, or if you use the Hebrew calendar of 360 days constitutes one year, or at least it did before Hezekiah, and all the ancients indicate that the year was a 360-day rotation, if you would, then when you multiply that, you get an interesting figure of 7920 with a whole bunch of zeros behind it, Suffice it to take, say you got 7920, which happens to be the diameter of the Earth mm. in miles. 
Okay, huh. so the do what we have here is a very interesting thing on the on the orbiting of the Earth around the galactic center of the Milky Way. We find ourselves in a situation where we have both the twenty one, which is in in the biblical uh, the sacred cubit, which I affirm to be twenty five point twenty inches. And that if you convert that to feet, it will become 2.1 feet. So 21 becomes very significant, and 7920 is not only the diameter of the Earth, but 7920 is the edge of the New Jerusalem. (laughs) And that is very significant because all the numbers of Scripture, whether you're dealing with uh, Ezekiel's holy district, whether you're dealing with the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, the Ark of the Covenant, Noah's Ark, all of these incredibly detailed, uh, uh, and, 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 and the chronologies of the scripture, so-and-so beget so-and-so, and then there were so many generations of this and that, and, and then you've got this uh, very fascinating, all wrapped up into two verses in the Revelation that describes the holy city, which incidentally, guys, turns out to be us. <laughs> so the question is, do you know your measurements? <laughs> and so, 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 you know, my son just got married, and, uh, uh, and he's my, my, my baby. He's, he's about 30, and then he just finally, uh, you know, took the leap. And, uh, and I said, well, it's very important that you know her measurements, because that's what we're, we are the bride of Messiah. And so we better know our measurements. We are the bride of Christ, and we're also known as the holy city. And so we happen to be 12,000 furlongs. Well, that's not just a quaint little old uh, Elizabethan um, expression, furlong. You can go to Wikipedia and find out that it happens to be 660 feet. I mean, where did we get the feet, the inch? Is it some king's foot? You know, we can go on to this, but suffice it to say that we are uh, based upon a what they call a duodecimal system. That's not Dewey. That's duo, D-U-O, okay? And that's a system of 12. You got, you know, the 12, 12 uh, hours in the morning, 12 hours in the, at night, right. uh, constitutes 24 hours in a day, so forth and so on. So when you look at 12,000 furlongs, you multiply that by 660 feet, one furlong, and you're going to wind up 7,920,000 feet, 7,920, mm. which is very fascinating. Let's take the moon. It's 2160, and in comparison to most planets and their moons, our moon is a monster in proportion. That's in, that's, in, that's in diameter, just to clarify? That's the, that's the diameter. Okay. But if you can take that diameter and put a square, in other words, you place the moon inside of its own diameter, um, each of the edges would be 2160 as a square, and what you're going to get there is uh, a total of 2160 is going to equal what? Times 4, I think it equals 864, right? 
and uh, which is interesting because that happens to be the um, you're talking about the perimeter <laughs> it happens to be of the this? diameter right. of the sun eight six four right eight hundred sixty four thousand um, miles is the diameter of the sun so so all you begin to see a pattern how that all of these uh, numbers begin to interrelate and they, of course they like you say if you separate the digits out. Uh, Gons, you wind up seeing the number nine repeated. Right. At the beginning of the revelation, it says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first, this is very important, the first and the last. It is only nine numbers. It's the cardinal numbers, okay? And you got number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, so you have one and you have nine. I'm the one, I'm the nine. I'm the first, I'm the last. Mm. I'm the beginning, no. I'm the end. Now, Doug, I'm sure there's somebody out there, and even if there's not, let's just address it. What would you say to somebody who looks at all this number stuff and says, well, you know, you could kind of make anything, make any number. You know, if you put a number through the right process, you know, and do enough things and looking at it enough ways, you could make it equal nine uh, any number of ways. What would you say to a skeptic? Not that we have. Well, a skeptic would, would would say, "Well, hey, you can prove anything with number." Okay, with numbers. You know, the 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 uh, the Greeks back in the three, four, five hundred BCs. You know, eventually, uh, uh, although he's been given a bad rap, I don't think he's as bad as some claim. But uh, Pythagoras. You know, eventually, number became everything. You know, uh, Plato, uh, that was it. I mean, they looked at numbers, okay, and number, not as uh, bean counters, arithmetic, but they looked at math in a most mystical fashion, okay? In other words, they came to terms with the fact that these absolutes somehow had a controlling influence in the universe, and realized that something huge was going on with regards to number. So the skeptic, okay, I've got a, I've got a little nephew who's really an interesting guy. He's a big, uh, you know, statistics person for Google, which is really big in this, this, uh, stats, right? And, and, and so I asked him, I said, well, you know, I want to know, uh, let's do a histogram which is a, a kind of a, a bar chart, you know, horizontal or vertical. And let's find out what number or number set is the most compatible with all other number sets that we can find out there. You know, let's, let's, just, let's try to do as, 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 as close to a, a combination of numbers that we can find. And so we did. And we... It's, and by, the, by far, running away with the, the, the number that was the most compatible, the most uh, able to be integrated into all other number sets, the, the number uh, set that just overwhelmed everything else and everybody else. And we started off just totally random, right? Mm -hmm. And, and we, did, we did put in number sets that we wanted to be sure that got in, uh, you know, whether they were in sets of two, three, four, five, whatever, right? And um, uh, running away with it was 18. Hmm. I mean, it, it, everything, everything. And, of course, 1 plus 8 is 9. Uh, nine. And we have one sun, 
in the solar system and eight planets now that we've knocked out Pluto. Right? <laughs> Convenient. God, he's been relegated to the periphery of a dwarf. <laughs> so we've got five dwarf planets and we, you know, rocks, and we've got eight planets of right. our little solar system, right? Now, 18 becomes overwhelming because not just because the holy district in Ezekiel measures itself as literally, it says 18,000 because 4,500 cubits on each side of it, and you multiply that by four, you're going to get 18,000. But if you look at the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem comes out to be, uh, you know, 7920 million is 1,500 miles. That's why they say as a cube, that's why I'm, I'm going to convince Doug Hamp yet that the New Jerusalem is a cube, is the fact that it will equal 18,000 miles on its 12 edges mm. of, if you would, the box. And I, I wanted to get into that a little bit. Can we can we actually start from the beginning with that? Because I think that's an interesting uh, topic. The the dimension of the the new heavens uh, or the new Jerusalem as it comes down. What, you know, where do we see it in Scripture, and how did you come to figure out how big the new Jerusalem is going to be? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Gons, that fact that for, for many, many years, okay, I think this goes back primarily to a lot of guys that got into dispensationalism, Clarence Larkin, a lot of these guys, they, they, they looked at the New Jerusalem in such a literal way. And, and I'm not saying it's not literal. I believe it is literal, okay? But it's also, if you would, if I can use the word in a very generic sort of fashion, general fashion, very cosmic, okay? Meaning it's probably very multidimensional, and that's what I finally concluded in the sense that it it's 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 described as a cube, but it's also described in a pyramidal fashion. Mm-hmm. So from the Earth's perspective, which comes out of the Earth, it's pyramidal. From the heavenly perspective, it comes out as a cube. When it is joined together, that is, that is it, it has to be multidimensional. That's why what I'm saying here at the, at the commencement of this, that the measurements that are given of the holy district in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, very copious, very detailed on everything, right? Juxtaposed to the New Jerusalem and the dimensions that are so concisely presented in Revelation 21, verses 16 and 17, that the two are absolutely compatible, and they are designed to merge into one. That's why Doug Hamp's uh, declaration of the new heavens and the new earth and the breaking of the veil between these two dimensions is so, uh, it, 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 so if I could, well, it, it exegetically, the way he's exegeted this, and the way he has made commentary on these passages of the new heaven and the new earth, is utterly brilliant. Okay, because he's bringing the, the ladder that Jacob saw between the heaven and the earth and the angels ascending and descending, as was given to Nathaniel, upon the Son of Man bringing heaven to earth and earth to heaven. 
bringing these two dimensions together is really on the heart of God, okay? And, and here's my concern is this, that the New Jerusalem, and the way, and the way that, that, that uh, the, the dispensationalists and these, these uh, brethren who, many of them, uh, early Plymouth brethren, who took the dimensions of the New Jerusalem. And, and, and by the way, you know, Queen Elizabeth and her little court that was determined to preserve the mystery, even, of the measurement of the sacred cubit, uh, a, a, a measurement, a dimension that was so sought after, literally, by people like Sir Isaac Newton, who finally concluded, ultimately, that the, the, the measurement of the sacred cubit with the Latin inch, and we go way, 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 way back on this thing, that somehow the British were able to, to preserve this thing as 25.02 inches. Well, eliminate the zero, and you still have 252, which I hasten to add adds to nine again, right? <laughs> yep. so, so what we're looking at here in this sacred cubit becomes, you know, all-consuming. Now, the British came up with the nautical mile, and said, well, the Earth is 360 degrees, there's, you know, 60 miles in every degree, we're going to wind up with, uh, you know, a circumference of the nautical Earth that they're still used by the airline pilots, and the, and the sea captains are still using the nautical Earth miles as 21,600 nautical miles is the circumference of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Getting back to the New Jerusalem is that the the measurements are taken literally and, and by the way I hasten to add, okay, I taught metrics for you know uh, you know decades. Right? Well now I look at it almost as as as, as you know the measurements from hell. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and by the way, in the, in the 1970s, there was a huge fight over, you know, whether or not the, the, the British should adopt the, the French metric system, right. which the whole world seems to have gone after, right? Except the Americans. And a few things in in England that have not gone metric. I mean, I I'm not going to tell you that I'm 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 so many meters tall. I'm not going to tell you how many liters I put in my car. I'm not going to tell you how many kilometers I'm driving. I'm going to tell you I'm into miles. I'm into pounds. I mean, how archaic, isn't it? It's so archaic, and yet it is based upon a system of 12 juxtaposed over and against the metric 10. Right. Okay? Hmm. Now, I get into the Bible, and I get into the book of, of, of Revelation. 10 is not a good number. <laughs> <laughs> 10 kings, 10 toes, 10 heads, 10 crowns, 1 tenth, 10 days. I, you know, eventually, you know, and then I look at, you know, 12 manner of fruit. You know, uh, 12 apostles of the Lamb, uh, 12 uh, tribes of Israel. Uh, 12 is good. 144 is 12 times 12, and on and on we go. So getting back to the New Jerusalem, if I look at 12,000 furlongs and I eliminate the zero, it, it, even, even in this, just take it literally here, 
and I eliminate zero. I can use the zeros too, but it, it, it's easier to see it this way. And I multiply 12 times 12. I'm going to get 144 on one face of my cube. Every cube has six faces, right? Look at a box. Top, bottom, and four sides. That's going to equal six. Six times what? 144 is going to give me 864, which is the sun. You get it? Got it. So the, the New Jerusalem has no need for the sun because he's there. Mm, wow. <laughs> and he's there in relationship with his bride. I mean, so so the whole book, the signs in the heavens and and uh, you know on the earth, is directed toward this. And and so many of the uh, of, of of the expressions and the measurements in the Bible, all throughout, are crying out. I want a tabernacle among you. I want to be your God. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to talk with you. I want to meet you on the road to Emmaus. I don't want to talk to 1.5 million people that have gathered here for Passover in Jerusalem. I mean, everyone's it. You know, everyone's important. But I want to talk to these two guys on the road to Emmaus that are all bummed out. Because what I want to do is I want to speak to you out of the Word of God, the Psalms, the prophets, the, you know, I want to talk with you about Messiah and testify of him. I'm talking to you guys, right. you two guys on the road. And this is why Christianity, true Christianity, is so unique because it demands a relationship. Right. Okay. And, and an intimate relationship. Adam, where are you? I want to know you. I'm this breeze in the garden that is made for you, and you're made for me. We got a problem now, and we got to solve the problem. I'm going to do that because I want this relationship with you. So everybody listening to us, you know, they got to know one thing about us: that it is a me and the experience. If it's true Christianity. I'm knocking yeah. at the door of your life. I want to get in, and I want to have a relationship with you. I want to get to know you. You mean I'm not going to gravitate into the Godhead? I'm not going to become one with the cosmos in that sense? No, you're not. I want to know you, and you're going to know me. Right. Yeah, this, you know. This is, is great stuff. It absolutely is. And, you know, the, the numbers game is an interesting one because so many um, scientists and researchers and, and physicists and things are actually coming to conclusions that there could be a deity because of the mathematics of the universe. Um, yes. You know, we did just in our last episode uh, the same thing. And so it's very interesting to go through and check that out. Now, I'm looking here uh, on your <laughs> on your four-page uh, table of contents here, and I see something about the pyramids of Egypt. Yes, uh, yes. And now you have an interesting theory about who built it. I and sure it, do. It would not be a Canary Cry Radio episode um, if we <laughs> didn't address this uh, part in your book here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, there's always been an evangelical fascination uh, from the 1600s on, in particular, with regards to the Great Pyramid of uh, Egypt, Giza, which is the oldest of the three. Uh, and 
by the way, by volume, the very largest. Now, here's what the only thing I can say to a skeptic or any of us is that if certain numbers keep reoccurring, then something's going on here. And they're happening over and over and over again. So I have a little chapter in the book, Signs in the Heavens, which you can get on Amazon, by the way. Okay, but here's something very interesting, is that these uh, monuments, and I say monuments, uh, I began to look at the so-called Neolithic Earth, the latter Neolithic Earth, the most recent, and which is probably from about 2500 B.C., uh, some say even as much as, you know, 300 B.C., okay, Iron Bronze Age and all this, right. and the Stone Age, and what are we, you know, what, what, what was really going on here? And uh, you look at the Great Pyramid of Giza because as a structure to this day, okay, uh, notwithstanding the Pentagon's efforts, but as far as volume goes, it is still the largest single structure on the planet is so far insofar as volume mm. is concerned. Huh. Okay? It nothing equals it. Uh, as far as an artificial structure. Is does that include the underground chambers and everything or just, just what we see on the surface? What we see on the surface for sure. Uh, you can say that the Great Wall of China maybe insofar as volume is concerned, is the largest. But as far as a singular structure, as far as volume is concerned, there's nothing that equals the Great Pyramid of Giza. Okay, so-called Cheops or whatever they want to call it, uh, but Giza. And and so what we're looking at here, when you look at that Giza, the question is, like, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, who built it? Right, well, the Egyptians will tell you they did not build it. Uh, somehow it's been tagged the Pillar of Enoch. Well, where did that come from, right? And when was it built? Well, so in the book, I go into the different time frames. Uh, it would appear that maybe it showed up um, somewhere around 2300 B.C. Uh, when was the flood? I get into that. And so by the time it's over with, you know, I've concluded ultimately based upon the measurements, okay, that this thing was a monument on the earth according to Jeremiah 31. Thou hast placed signs and wonders in Egypt. The word for signs there is oath in Hebrew. It can be interpreted as a monument. Okay, just like let this be a sign between us when the children of Israel, you know, the six tribes here and the six tribes, and they put this pillar up of stone. This was a sign. This was a monument. Thou hast placed monuments uh, and signs and wonders uh, in Egypt and in Israel and among other men to this day to declare thy great name. Hmm. So there are some monuments out there. 
Well, I began to look at them, and I'll get back to Giza in a second. But I started going around the world and looking at a lot of these Neolithic monuments that a lot of people say, unfortunately, that the alien, uh, you know, astronaut theorists believe that, uh, you know, the Anunnaki, uh, you know, uh, set us all up, and they're involved in building these things. These were built by Nephilim. They were huge. Therefore, they were moving these giants giant stones around, therefore the Nephilim, uh, the demagogues, the men of renown, the fallen angelic beings, the hybrids built these things uh, ad nauseum, ad infinitum, and that they were building all these things. Of course, we don't have anything in writing, any hieroglyphics on these ancient structures unless they were added later on, but there they are. And I'm talking about Stonehenge. I'm talking about uh, Teotihuacan, uh, outside of Mexico City, 25 miles northeast. I'm talking right. about the Peruvian Sun Star. I've uh, given some other uh, examples, the Bosnian pyramids even. And when you look at Giza, however, this is such an incredible object because of the size. And so during the 1800s, a guy by the name of Sir William Flinders Petrie uh, of first Egyptologist of the British Museum, and a absolutely uh, he's the he is the father of uh, of modern day archaeology and actuality of how to do this right. Okay, uh, him and Albright, they but especially Petrie, in so far as metrology goes measuring, getting dimensions. He meticulously measured uh, for several years in the 1880s uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Others had done it before him, but he really went after it systematically. By the way, came from a Plymouth Brethren uh, evangelical background. Uh, himself, was he a believer? Well, I don't know, but I do know that his metrology has lasted, uh, you know, it's the test of time. And so when he measured it, it uh, the, the one side of it was a little over 756 feet in length, the base edge, and the other sides were just about that. So it would assume that, that the measurement of the base edge over time, earthquakes, wear and tear, and so forth and so on, that the Great Pyramid of Giza's uh, base edge measurement was a four square. It was a square. Hmm. And the edge of it was 756 feet. Seven, five, six. Now, Petrie himself believed that the Egyptian royal cubit of 20.618818, whatever, that you can use that and you'll come up with 440 Egyptian royal cubits on one edge. If you cubed by 12 the edge of the Great Pyramid of Giza at 440 Egyptian royal cubits of 20, you know, point six. One eight one eight one eight one eight. If you use that measurement, you're going to wind up with five thousand two hundred and eighty uh, Egyptian royal cubits, which incidentally is five thousand two hundred and eighty is a fractal, if you would, 
of the British Imperial Mile. You're hmm. back to square one again. Wow. So the question is, the question is this. Was it the intention of the builders to use the Egyptian royal cube? Well, the question is obviously answered. They were not around when the thing was built. They openly admit it. It was not built by the Egyptians. It's a step pyramid. So consequently, who built it? Well, it was the Nephilim. No, it was not. I, I, I argue against that, and I say this. This is what my argument is. It's mathematical. And that is, okay, why were they trying to reflect the dimensions of paradise? As, as Dr. John Michel, philosopher of the hippies, uh, who wrote the book The Dimensions of Paradise and who fought uh, vociferously for the maintenance of the duodecimal system juxtaposed to the, to the metric system, bless his heart. <laughs> By the way, his writings are just incredible. Uh, he's a satirist and, and uh, uh, just a real character, but um, he definitely did uh, uh, enlighten us with regards to the, uh, the imperial uh, mile system and the dual system uh, that is uh, you know, still to this day used in the United States at least. So anyway, getting back to this, the fact of, uh, of this pyramid is that if it's 756 feet, imperial inches, I like to use the word imperial inches, uh, on that thing, then what would happen if it were subjected to what we now feel is the uh, Hebrew sacred cubit measurement of 25.20 inches. Now, I know there are certain dear brothers that I, I work with who believe that the Hebrew sacred cubit was aligned with that of the Egyptian royal cubit because Moses was familiar with it, mm, right? Yeah. But it turns out that a fellow by the name of Julius Opert, who was an archaeologist, uh, an Assyrianologist uh, for, you know, looking around, probing around in uh, ancient Assyria, discovered that the Assyrian cubit and the Persian royal cubit, which the Hebrews would have been very familiar with, was precisely 25.20 inches. Aha! So when you use 25.20, or let's just take 2.1 feet, and you divide it into 756 feet, the edge of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Now, listen, we're talking math here. These are absolutes. Right. They don't lie. But when you do that, you know what you wind up with? You wind up with precisely 360 Hebrew sacred cubits. Mm, interesting. And you multiply that by four, and you know what you get? 1,440 Hebrew sacred cubits. 144. Which happens to be the wall of the New Jerusalem. Now follow me. That wall that's given in Revelation 21.17, know your measurements, guys, <laughs> right? I'm describing us. Right. So here's the beauty of this. It doesn't say height. It doesn't say length. It doesn't say width that the wall is. It just says that the wall is 144 cubits. Now, 
We'd like to say it must be thick. It must be high. It can't be high because the city's too big. It must be then thick. We don't know. All we know is 144 cubits. How, how long is a cubit? 2.1 feet or 25.20 inches. So let's multiply 144 by 2.1 feet and we get 3, what? 302.4 feet. 3024. By the way, 324 is 9, right? Okay, how about let's go around the Great Pyramid of Giza's base at 756 times 4 is, guess what? 3024 feet. Mm. So are we saying that the base edge, uh, you know, four square of the Great Pyramid of Giza is a reflection of the New Jerusalem's wall? And I'm saying, yes! <laughs> now, 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 I've done a number that, that is so rare. Now, I'm going to toot my horn. I have come up with Giza pie. Are you ready for this? No, that's not pizza pie. That's Giza pie. Now, what is Giza pie? Well, we all know the traditional, um, uh, you know, and you can make it a, uh, a, what they call a rational fraction. But it's irrational. You know, pi is irrational. You can never get an absolute pi, right? Well, the question is this, okay? In math, we use, you know, a simple fraction, 22 over 7. Divide 7 into 22, and you get 3.14825, you know, so forth, right? 5287. And this is our little one. Right, but you know, it's a huge fraction that goes into infinity when you right. get pi, real pi. This goes on forever, you know. The numbers, they're all changing, so forth and so on. I think it's uh, the fraction that's used is several thousand over several thousand, you know. Okay, okay. so but let's take Giza pi for example. Now, what is Giza pi? Well, Giza pi will allow you. Okay, it will allow you to square the circle. Now, that's a in-house Masonic logo. Okay, so mm. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I will be accused. You're so not, you're not a Freemason, are you? <laughs> not thank God. <laughs> okay, just, just, just well, clarifying. Just checking, you know. You know, uh, and, and by the way, you know, the stealing of the thirty-three by the Masons. Now that's not that's not right. You know, I mean, that's Messiah's number thirty-three, and 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 and, and, and so I have a hard time with what the, these guys are trying to do. But that sure. said, I think we here's something very interesting. If you take the elevation of the Great Pyramid of Giza, which everybody's measured because it doesn't have a pyramidium on the top. That's the nine because it's an eight-sided thing. If you look from the top, you know, Gans, if you look at the top of the Great Pyramid, you'll notice that its sides are indented. So it's actually eight-sided. Okay. Right. We, yeah. we, we call this in math a, a, a half of an octahedron that's above, you know, as above, so below, they always say, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's half of an octahedron. But it itself, on a, it's above part, if you would, 
It really ain't sided. It, it, it's very fascinating to look at this. Very slight, but it's, it, it's indented, okay, on each of its sides. Therefore, it's eight-sided. Now, of course, my theory on that is the fact that there were eight that were in the ark. They made a statement. Eight has to do with the eschaton, the new eternity. It's the eighth day of resurrection. Uh, again, eight were saved in the ark, and so we're making a statement here with eight. And the one is at the top. Okay, that's the, that's the one who is the, uh, at the top. But if the pyramid were completed, and by the way, in the, in the year 2000 at the millennium, they were going to put a cap on top of the Great Pyramid of Giza, kind of a gold-leafed uh, top. It never came off, though. Uh, and uh, some consider this cap as the capstone uh, the stone that the builders rejected is made the, the head of the corner and so forth and so on. And, and But if you continued it up, it's about a 30-foot uh, climb uh, to the top of it, right? I mean, if you continued your angle, uh, it's missing about a 30-foot section on the top. But if you add from the base to the top, it turns out that it's about 480.9 inches, 480 feet 9 inches. Now, what I did was I took that elevation, and to make a pie, I divided it by the fish that Jesus caught uh, at the Sea of Galilee in his resurrection, which was 153, which I hasten to add adds to nine again, right? And so <laughs> if we divide that into the 480.9, and we come up with 3.14 with some 313, whatever, numbers, okay? Now, I'm out to square the circle. In other words, I know that the base of the Giza Pyramid is 3,024 feet. I want to make a circle that is going to equal that. The only way I can do that is this. I extend. Now, Paul, I've got to kind of visually give this to you guys. I can extend the radius, half of the circle, to the peak of the pyramidium, okay, down to the base. And then I go into the earth, if you would, and I extend that, okay, and I will find out that my uh, diameter okay, is going to uh, equal a certain number, okay, 480.9 times 2, and it turns out that my radius is going to be 229 precisely sacred cubits, Hebrew sacred cubits, 229 on the top, 229 on the bottom. I take that diameter that I've just created, that esoteric object, and I multiply that by Giza pi, because pi times the diameter equals the circumference. Can you follow me? That's how yes. you find yeah. the, the circumference of a circle, right. by pi times the diameter. But you can't use any pi. You've got to use my Giza pi. <laughs> and when you use Giza pi, you wind up with 3024, which is the perimeter of the square. I've squared the circle. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, okay. That is, that's, that's not supposed numbers. to happen. 
That's not supposed to happen. You guys, that's not supposed to happen. And then once the Masons find out I've done it with the Hebrew sacred cubit, they're going to have a fit. <laughs> you hear that, Masons? You You're hear that? And I'm taking back their pillars, too. I've got those Solomon pillars, man. I've got them bad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in fact, I'm taking this whole thing back from the Neo, you know, from the pagans. You know, everybody's got this thing about, you know, the Druids. The Druids weren't around for a thousand years when Stonehenge was built. Right. And now, by the way, Petrie did amazing, amazing metrology on, on uh, Stonehenge. So throughout all this metrology, and excuse me if I missed it somewhere, but mm -hmm. who who do you think built the pyramid of Giza? The pyramid were yeah exactly. The pyramids were built as well, as well as I believe Stonehenge, the other pyramids in Bosnia, and many places around the Teotihuacan. I could go on, but they were built, I believe, by the Shemites. Okay, Shem. And his, in other words, whatever happened to Shem? Well, he's the father of China. Well, guess what? Have you heard about the Chinese pyramids? Oh, my goodness, there's hundreds of them. And I'm yeah, sitting right. here going, you know, I was speaking to a group of, uh, of Chinese uh, brethren down in, uh, American Chinese down in uh, Los Angeles recently. And I said, hey, you guys got a pyramid. Guess where it's at? In fact, I named it the New Jerusalem Pyramid. <laughs> what an ostentatious guy. So I, I, they said, well, where is it? And I said, it's in the cradle of uh, Chinese civilization. Or at the end of the Silk Road. It's right there. And they said, well, Shin is considered, the, I, think, I think you pronounce his name in Chinese, Xi, right? And, and it's right next to a town uh, that Mao uh, started his uh, revolution in. Right. It's in the heart of China. It's a very central part of China, next to a town oddly named X-I apostrophe A-N. How would you pronounce that? You know what they Zion. Zion? That's Zion. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? interesting? <laughs> wow, that is Zion. Interesting. And so, so I said, well, let's look at the measurements of Zion. By the way, they called somebody up right while we were there. In China, living in that town, and said, are there pyramids around there? And they said, no. And they said, well, we can see them on Google Earth. <laughs> <laughs> the guy got on the phone and goes, yeah, I guess they're here. <laughs> so what is so, the sig what's the sig I'm sorry, continue with yeah. that, Zion. Yeah, the Shemites. The Shemites built Right, them. right. What's the significance of the Shemites, and how did you come to that and... and why right. the Shemites well, you, you look at the Nephilim. Ark. Let's look at Noah's Ark. Let's go back to Noah's Ark. Okay. Well, we know it's 300 cubits long, right? Right. And so you look at 300 cubits, and you go, well, how long is that? Well, that's 630 feet. Well, this thing is, you know, that's one thing that uh, Russell Crowe and gang on this new movie, uh, Noah's Ark, finally got right, was that it was rectangular in shape, you know. I'm right. not sure about the rest of the movie, but I'm sure they got this thing right, and that was, it is rectangular. It's a, it's a, it's a rectangular box structure, and it turns out that it's 630 feet long, just shy of the Titanic, Okay. But multiply six, by the way, that's nine, six, three is nine, <laughs> right? Okay, so it's 630 feet long. Multiply how many rectangles, how many edges of that box are 630? Well, there's four, right? Right. The sides. 
in the bottom, the top, right, on the sides, right? And so six to, uh, four times 630 is going to give you what? 2520. There's okay. your sacred cubit. Oh, right, <laughs> there, right, right. Isn't that right? Okay, so we got 2520, which adds to nine again, of course. But that's, so, they, so he knew this. So this is why the Great Pyramid has embedded within it this signature of the 2520. And by the way, how many, how many degrees are in a circle? 360. How many times did the children of Israel uh, circumnavigate Jericho before its walls came tumbling down? Seven. What's seven times 360 degrees in a circle? 2520. <laughs> See, this, this gets to be uh, very fascinating, right? right? Yeah. And so the handwriting on the wall is a, is a numeric. It's a monetary, you know, uh, many, many decal uparsin. A mina is a thousand. Uh, two minas is two thousand. A tekel is twenty shekels. And, and uparsin is from the root word where you parse something in half, it's half of a mina. That's five hundred. Add it up. 2,000, 20, and 500, it's, that's 2520. And so this is God's measuring. And so when you keep seeing these numbers repeated throughout the text and throughout the earth on these monuments, I hasten to add, you begin to see a pattern. Teo Tebacan, hey, they spent probably, some guys, uh, Harleston spent his whole life Measuring from the University of Arizona, measuring Teotihuacan, the, the the sacred district, the Pyramid of the Moon, the Pyramid of the Sun, the Citadel, the Avenue of the Dead, and so forth and so on. Uh, a guy by the name of Allen out of Bolivia, he looked at it from a GPS thing and determined, you know, this distance to that distance. It looks like the Citadel is thirteen hundred and twenty feet on one side. Times four is a mile. Well, maybe the district is completely subservient to the sacred cubit, uh, ipso facto, to the mile. And guess what? It is. How long is it from the back end of the Pyramid of the Moon to the end of the Avenue of the Dead, so-called, is exactly 7,920 feet. All of this, you know, uh, uh, all these crazy measurements of, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the decades some of these metrologists spent, and, and, you know, bless them, their work is tremendous. Okay, the Hunabs and all of the other uh, Sumerian feet and all of that that they used to measure uh, Teotihuacan, in point of fact, it is totally subservient to the mile, and consequently to the foot, and consequently to the sacred cubit. So let me just interject here. Are you saying that the the system we use now, you know, the foot, the mm-hmm. uh, the mile, and stuff like that? Are you saying that something was preserved, or or those measurements are, you know, the original? Uh, foundation of measuring, or, or I'm saying be- they're absolutely sacred. Okay, and and oddly enough, if we have 24 hours in a day. We have so many minutes in a day. Guess how many seconds we have in a day? 8640. What's up with that? 8640. That's and the, the number. Diameter. It's the sun. You're walking yeah. around. You're walking around in the sun of righteousness. 
<laughs> You're walking around the reality of the New Jerusalem. Well, who set that up? So this guy's an agnostic, and this guy's an atheist, and yet he has no idea that he is subjected to this reality on a second-by-second basis. He cannot escape it. So he tries <laughs> to go metric. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. He's still stuck in time and space. He's still, he's still stuck in it. Mm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> he can't get out of it. You know, and it's, you know, and, and, and so it, it's a, at this point in time, I'm looking at the old district in Ezekiel, and I realize, oh wait a minute, nine four five zero. Oh yeah, that's that's the eighteen. Of course, one plus eight is nine, and he's the omega. He's prophetically telling us, I'm the end of all this. I'm the, I am what I am, and I'm wrapping this all up because I'm going to be with you for eternity. <laughs> I mean, how did all this get going, and how does all this end? Right. Okay. This is why, you know, prophecy is so incredibly fulfilling. And, and I believe, brothers, I believe this, that at the end of days, God is opening uh, these kind of like ancient gates to us. I'm talking about this in a positive way. Okay. He is in, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 13. He's referred to in the Hebrew as the angel Palmoni. I don't want to sound like a Mormon here, but if you're listening to me and you're a Mormon, listen up. (laughs) And that is that he's also known as the revealer of secrets. The, The phrase that's used in the English is that certain one. Okay? It is only one time used in Hebrew, meaning Palmoni. And that means the revealer of secrets. Now, God isn't just keeping a bunch of secrets there. He said, tell Daniel what the vision of the 2300 days are. He's also known in the Hebrew, that word palmoni is also, can be translated, the wonderful numberer. The wonderful numberer. The revealer Hmm. of secrets. That's all of that can be translated that way. You can find that on Wikipedia. They do say some things that are correct. (laughs) So so the thing of it is, is what's he revealing? He's revealing. And by the way, the only one who's called wonderful in the scripture, we know who that is. His name shall be called wonderful, right? right? And so here we have a picture of someone who is revealing to Daniel the 2300-day vision, which, by, by the way, in American so-called religious history, was a huge thing put out by William Miller, you know, uh, uh, Reverend William Miller, the Millerites. And, of course, Jesus didn't show up in 1844. He looked at these 2300 days as years from the decree of the Persian kings to the very end. Was he figured 1843, then he figured 1844. And what happened was it was the great disappointment. He never came. The 2300 years was never fulfilled. Well, that's because they're not years, they're days. They're evening and morning sacrifices. That's a 24-hour time frame, and that's yet to come. Uh, 
Unfortunately, a lot of evangelical Christians said that vision was already fulfilled under Antiochus, you know, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, you know, who over a 2300-day time frame uh, desecrated and uh, so forth and so on, and it's history past. John Wolvert from Dallas Seminary uh, spoke the uh, the word and it happened, right? No, it was approximate, and he knew it was approximate. And God doesn't work in approximates. Mathematics, mathematics is an absolute science, okay? So when he says 2,300 days, he means 2,300 days. And so the, it, what happened in 1844, you know, out of that came the Seventh-day Adventists. Out of that came the Mormons. They started building temples. Uh, from Joseph Smith on, out of that came the Jehovah Witnesses, who said, well, we got the wrong date, let's go to 1873. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventist says, let's go into the, you know, the investigating uh, judgment, and uh, that, that's what was really going on here. Uh, and so all of these things were misinterpreted. Okay? Mm. I'm just saying that today we know what the 2300 days are. They are right. yet future, not that far off. Right, and, and and that that sort of leads to this uh, next question, which you know we'll see how long it goes, and we'll we'll do our best to try to poke holes in it, uh, just just so you know ahead of time, Doug. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and I don't know if we're even capable of doing so. I'm just saying that because you know we're just, we're, we're going to try, but we'll see. We'll see depending on what you say. Are you saying that we're out of control, gosh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, how you interpret it is totally your yes, subjective. Uh, um, so, so you you know you bring up some of these different groups. Uh, you know, obviously the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted the end for several uh, decades now. Uh, mm-hmm. Other groups have. Two thousand twenty-five is mm-hmm. uh, is a year that you declare as potentially the return of Jesus and, and the end of the age, so to speak. How did you get to that number? Well, in, in, in a word, it wasn't easy. <laughs> I don't want to be called, I don't want to out uh, Harold Camping, Harold Camping. Uh, <laughs> so, you're, so you're not going to tell us to go start selling stock and... Yeah, I'm not going to uh, get in my, uh, you know, my million-dollar mobile homes and travel all over the country and say, it's, it's, it's coming down. The, the Kriegerites, <laughs> yeah, I think right. we're going to call them. The... Uh, I am saying this. Well, traditionally, and I would say, you know, biblically as well, uh, there has always been this understanding that there would be 6,000 years. Either that's measured in, in uh, uh, you know, pre-Gregorian, pre-Julian days, uh, 360 days uh, before Hezekiah. When Hezekiah came on the scene in about 800 B.C., you know, all of a sudden the earth slowed down 5.2524 days, and, you know, we've been slowed down a little bit. Uh, we used to have all the ancient calendars were all set at 360, um, 24-hour day uh, circumstance, and there were 360 of these in a, a year. And then when Hezekiah wanted to live a little bit longer, everything slowed down. Somehow the whole earth slowed down. All the calendars (laughs) changed. At that point, they had to start adding extra days. We slowed down in our orbit, and that's just the way it has been since that time. Now, but 6,000 years, and that is related to the days of the week. 
being that man was created on the sixth day. He's allowed 6,000 years. This goes back to Peter's statement, one day is a thousand years and so forth. And so we're allowed 6,000 years. Now, the guy that did the seminal work on this was Bishop Archbishop James Usher of Ireland. And he did this work that was massive. And nobody can deprecate his scholarship. In fact, he was out to prove to the Catholic Church that Protestants aren't as dumb as we look kind of a thing, right? Hmm, and so he's got a, a library of books that nobody can even, to this day, uh, 10,000. I mean, his research was exhaustive for his time. And this was done in the 1600s, right, during the Elizabethan era and all that. And so he came up with the creation of Adam, biblically, was in 4004 B.C., now, all I've done is come up with a date that's about 33 years off of that a little earlier, which is 3,975. Now, in my book, Signs in the Heavens and on the Earth, that I'm plugging, thank you guys, is the fact that the chronologies of the scriptures are exceedingly precise. The problem being in the chronologies that some of the time frames were obfuscated, not in the sense that they were trying to hide them, but they are not accountable. You can't count them. And this would be when Israel didn't have any judges, when certain kings were, if you would, illegal. There was a queen uh, that one time was ruling in Israel, and she was disqualified. Therefore, you have to knock that time frame out. There's about 278 years like that in the chronologies, okay? And so when I did my chronologies, I wound up with, 3,975. I worked back from the cross. Usher worked forward. He did a wonderful, wonderful job of it, I hasten to add. Now, J.R. Church, who is the founder of Prophecy in the News, and has these conferences all over the place and has had this ministry for many, many years, wrote a book entitled Daniel Reveals the Bloodline of the Antichrist. If you ever get a chance to read it, guys, it's a great read. And uh, in that, he shows very clearly how that the Hebrew calendar, like today, 2014, they say it is the year 5,774, okay, which is getting like, oh, well, hey, we still got how many years till 6,000, right? Uh, we've mm. got about 200 and some odd years, so take it easy, guys. It's going to be a long time coming. But what he's done basically is he's proven that this year, uh, business with the Hebrew calendar, has been, in point of fact, tampered with. And this was done uh, right around about 150 A.D. when the Jews, when the Hebrews, if you would, came up with their own calendar and, and uh, more or less uh, legitimized it. Uh, under uh, certain conditions that were given, they basically hid, according to uh, J.R. Church, about 243 years. Are you following me? 
In other words, are you guys there? We're here. Yeah, we're here. Okay. They hit about 243 years on the calendar. So if you add the 5774 uh, year that we're now in and add the 243 years, you're going to wind up with about, you know, 6,017. Hey, we're overtime. <laughs> okay, so what do you do with that? Well, then, you know, you can count off the 5.2524 uh, days, and you wind up getting real close to 6,000. I mean, real close. So what I did is I began to put these things together, and I noticed certain patterns in the Bible, especially the verse in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, right in the midst of the Nephilim. Uh, the Almighty says, man's days shall be 120 years. Now, dear Rob Skiba thinks that somehow when Noah was 500 years of age and God told him this and that, and Shem was born about 100 years before the flood, right? Okay. That yeah. somehow we cram 120 years between 500 years of age, Noah, and 600 years of age, Noah, and the flood came. In other words, it is not linear. The expression 120 years does not mean a literal 120-year time frame chronologically between the birth of Shem when Noah was 500 years of age and begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And when the flood hit when he was 600 years of age, it very clearly states it. So, so that 120 years doesn't mean that. So the next question is, does it mean how long people are going to live after the flood? And the answer is an unequivocal, no. Noah lived 300 plus years after the flood. Shem right. lived 500 years, right? Yeah. So, so the question is, what does 120 mean? And, and it's, it's a word problem in math. And I know, Gonk, you love word problems in math. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of a number. How <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> have you heard that before? I'm thinking of a number. And, and, and this is exactly what Moses was doing here who wrote the Torah. And that is that God is thinking of a number. In Hebrew, the, the phrase 120 years means an original number that has been doubled. In other words, a number that's been doubled that forms a series that is multiplied by 100. What is that number? Well, we have to have a reference point. Okay? And the reference point turns out to be the Jubilee calendar. It turns out to be the sabbatical calendar, which is 49. Turns out that God is a 49er. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that already. Yeah, I guess that one. Okay, so 49. So that's the number that's been doubled. So what was the original number? It was 25. It was 2450. That's one half of 49. Okay, okay. 2450. So that's one half of 49. Now, the beauty of this is that 2450 is a series. It's, it's a series of numbers, and then you multiply it by 100. Well, I found out that came to 2450 years. Now, it turns out that 120 years can also be, as Mark Bilt brings out, you have multiple uh, interpretations of a text. So the 120 Jubilee cycles 
long jubilee count of 50 years, not 49, but 50. 50 times 120 is going to give you 6,000. Okay? But in this verse, Genesis 6-3, you're looking at 2,450 years from the birth of Shem to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Ooh would be 2,450 years. Hmm. That happens to be five sets of 490 years. Five sets. Five times 490 is 2,450. Then I began to look at the 6,000 and discovered something incredible. By the way, 2450 divided by 50 is going to give you 49. Duh, right? 49 Jubilee long cycles are within 2450. But fascinatingly enough, within 6,000 years, there are 12 sets of 490, which equal to 5,880 which means I'm 120 years short, which means that God is extremely clever. <laughs> we know about the 77s of Daniel. 70 times 7 is 490, right? Mm -hmm. So this segment, these segmentized 490 years become extremely important to the Almighty in his numeration. Okay? And so I realized that there were 12 sets of these 490, and that we had a remainder of 120 years, which equals to 6,000. Okay? So then I looked at the birth of Shem. Now, every chronologist, this side of heaven, I'll use that expression, is determined to tell you that biblically speaking, and it can be determined very easily, that from the creation of Adam until the birth of Shem were 1,558 years. Well, I figured out that there were three sets of 490 within that time frame, but I had 88 years left over. Well, first of all, eight was very significant. Two sets of eight was even more significant. Well, then I multiplied 88 times 360, and guess what it equaled? Are you ready? I'm ready. It equaled the perimeter of the New Jerusalem. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Wow. <laughs> is that not in, is that not God? <laughs> I mean, come on now, guys. I mean, do I have an amen here? Okay. And and I do believe that is no accident. We all agree, fifteen hundred fifty-eight years. Well, then why is there this eighty-eight years left over on this four hundred and ninety thing? I kept asking God this, and 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 about a week ago, I just well do the math, idiot. <laughs> so I went ahead and multiplied the eighty-eight times three hundred and sixty prophetical years in a Hebrew calendar, and it came out to the perimeter of the New Jerusalem. Now. That all said, up to the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, there are exactly 4,008 years. Okay? This is interesting. If you divide the 50 into the 1558, you're going to get 31 Jubilee cycles. Okay? Plus 8. 
There's not eight again. Okay, then you get to the resurrection of Christ, and it's 4,008 years. How do you figure that? Well, 1558 plus 2450, right? You got 49 and 31, so 31 up to Shem, 49 up to Jesus. That turns out to be 31 plus 49 is 80. So you've got eight years left over. So 1,992 years is... 2025, but I got eight left over. I add that eight on top of it, and it comes out to 2000, which is the final 40 Jubilee cycles. So 31 plus 49 plus 40 is equal to 120 long count Jubilee cycles of 50 years. So I know a lot of us that are listening to this program are probably, you know, your head is spinning. But we're dealing in absolutes, and we're dealing in chronologies, and we're dealing with math that has a divine imperative associated with it. And it's Mm. telling us that man's days are numbered. God said that in Genesis 6-3 through Moses' writings. And God is spot on, and he's giving you 120 years like this. And time's almost up, so I calculated the time, 4,008 years, and, uh, you know, this is the, the resurrection of Christ, you know, and then, of course, we've always said traditionally, well, you have 2,000 years between, you know, the creation of Adam and Abraham, then from Abraham to Jesus is 2,000, and from uh, Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion, uh, 2,000 years, and then time's up. But see, that eight keeps moving through time. And that Mm. is the eschaton. That is the finality. That is the final week of the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. And that's in my book, too. Because when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and resurrected on Easter Sunday morning, is a seven-day time frame over an eight-day time frame. In other words, it was half a day on Palm Sunday, it was half a day in the evening on Easter sunrise, and that constitutes a day plus six days in the middle, and you've got seven full days. The 70th week of Daniel, I believe, is the Passion Week of Jesus lived out in his people. Hmm, interesting. And then we're heading for Jerusalem, guys. And that we are to bear the testimony of Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost, as we embrace his cross. And he set his face as a flint on that final week. He knew exactly what it would cost him. And for the first three and a half days, nobody could touch him. And then he gave his all. And he was in the grave three days and three nights, but stayed unnoticed by most until a half a day later. That's the last three and a half days. And he arose from the grave. I do appreciate that it all does point back to the gospel. And even though, you know, it does take a little bit of a mathematician to uncover some of these things, I think it's fascinating that it all does sort of point back to what Jesus did and everything. And subsequently, you know, just as a side note, David Flynn had pointed out the triple eights, eight, 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 as yeah. a, as a number that represents Jesus. So yeah. it's or interesting Jesus that, Christ. that, uh-huh. yeah. So it's interesting that, uh, that number keeps moving through, uh, the way you render, mm-hmm. um, this, this whole the thing here. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes. It is. It, it, it's truly infinity. 
It is, he is the omega. He is the end. He is the last. And he wraps up everything. Uh, he's the all and in all. And he is, as Malachi 4, 1 and 2 says, he is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings because we're going to really need some healing here after the mess we're going to get ourselves in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so he comes as, he comes as the son of righteousness. John, he got this verse or something about the, 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 the son of righteousness or the, 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 his face shown as the sun, right? Yeah, and, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, I get that from, um, well, a couple places, but, mm-hmm. uh, the main one that I used just for, you know, just, just as a yeah. reference was Matthew 17, two, where his transfiguration, mm-hmm. where his face shone like the sun. So, yes, yes, that's, that's wonderful. That is, that is such a wonderful verse. And so, so I'm looking forward to, uh, new heaven and new earth. And I'm looking forward, uh, you know, uh, in a very active, uh, activistic sort of a way. And I think that these numbers don't lie. I think that the numbers are extremely convincing. They, you know, the, 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 the notion that you can prove anything by numbers is, is, is a, a kind of like a, you know, out there statement that has absolutely, you know, uh, uh, you know, you can't prove that. It's a, it's just a statement flying around out there. Okay. Right. When these numbers keep coming up the way they are through the Neolithic Earth, when they keep coming up through uh, you know, one of the most incredible things ever uh, etched on the face of the planet is the Peruvian uh, sun star and cross, the, whose measurements are so astonishing that if you get into it, okay, and of course along come the uh, ancient astronaut theorists who are convinced it was a heliport of sorts, you know, where space right. landed on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. I don't know about that. <laughs> What's his name? Daniker, uh, you know, the guy that, you know, the German guy. I mean, no way. No way. When you look at this thing and who etched this thing, and by the one, why does it have 81 specific potholes in, 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 in so elaborately laid out in triangles and in squares? It, it, it's astonishing what they did mm. and how it was so preserved. And then it's got this cross that's connected to it with, with very specific dimensions that you can see. What's it doing there for the last 4,000 years? Right. I mean, some of these things you say to yourself, well, look, at, we don't know who did it, but we do know the measurements of these things. We do know their measurement. We do know the measurement of the Great Pyramid of Giza. We know that. We know the measurements of Stonehenge, and we know the measurements of Kalanish. We know the measurements of, 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 of all of these. Uh, Karnak. I mean, Greece. What were they doing with all these rocks at Karnak? <laughs> right. And, and, and so you see, well, hey, just count the, the number of rocks and multiply by 360. Oh, you'll be shocked what you find. Hmm. As uh, as uh, my tax guy told me, as tears rolled down my face, uh, as uh, as I knew, as I figured out how much I owe Caesar, uh, the numbers don't lie. So the numbers don't lie, and you'll be indebted to Caesar and to the day. Hey, you can always do payments, brother. (laughs) You know, you know, it's not as easy to figure out. uh, Just you know, as a side note, it's it's. 
they make it very complicated for you to, yeah. to figure that out. So anyway, yeah, Caesar's a complicated guy. <laughs> well, just don't ask questions. <laughs> All right, well, I think we've had a very boring session here, but we somehow managed to get through it. So. <laughs> no, no, no. This is very fascinating and a lot of numbers in there, so I'm sure everybody needs to go back and uh, go back with your pen and paper and write everything down as you listen to it again. Or their scientific calculators. Right, there you go. Those yeah, giant yeah. things that we had to use for calculus and stuff. Sure, yes. And, and most, hey, most of it, you guys, is just very simple math. I know. It was. And, 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 it and was. that's what's beautiful about it. You know, it, it, anybody, I mean, you can figure this out yourself. Absolutely. And uh, it's very approachable. Right. And, uh, so make sure, if you want to learn more about all of this stuff, make sure to check out his new book, Signs in the Heavens and on the Earth, Man's Days Are Numbered. Douglas Krieger, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Yes, Bob, it's been a delight, absolute and, delight. And where can uh, everybody check out your stuff if they so wish? Okay, if they really want to get into our blogosphere, they can go to www.tribnet.org or the Tribulation Network or just look up my name, Douglas Krieger. I'm all over the internet. I do a lot of writing for World Mysteries, which is out of Canada. They have a neat site, and I have a lot of esoteric stuff on there as a way of communicating to the lost and a dying world that is trying to figure this out as well. And so we put all that together, and they can get me on those on those blogs, or they can go to Amazon and check out the books at this point in time. And uh, TripNet Publications right now is, is, is running these books. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and then uh, we can carry on dialogues and so forth and so on, comments and what have we. Okay, sounds good. We'll make sure to check all of that out. Once again, Douglas Krieger, thanks for coming on the show, buddy. God bless. God bless. There you go, everybody. Make sure to grab a straw and a hand pump so you can pump all those brains back through your ears. Um, <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this numbery uh, episode of Canary Cry Radio. And, uh, you know, there you go. And, Whoa. And, uh, 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 uh. Speaking of numbers. Speaking of numbers. Just, I will, just reiterate. I will include uh, all of the mentions or, I guess, the... You know, not calculations per se, but the places where nine shows up in a lot of the numbers that Doug Krieger points out. It, it, I made a list. It was interesting. I, I came up with 20 different numbers that he brings up in the book that all add up to nine with with this, right. you know, thing. So that'll be in the show okay, notes, so you can check it out. Jumping off point there. And uh, and interestingly, as you listen, there's certain numbers that he says that if you use this formula, it adds up to nine. He doesn't always point it out, there but it's there. Yeah, I mean that's basically. The, a good portion of the following along that I was able to do. But so there you go and make sure to check out his stuff, his new book, his blog, his Douglas Krieger is his name. And um, you know, there you go. And if you feel like it, make sure to leave us a rating or review or go to the support tab on canarycarradio.com and do that and or um send us an email, say what's up. Uh give us a a high five, cyber high five. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. And make sure to tune in next time to the uh, following episodes of Canary Cry Radio. And until then, think outside the cage.